0: Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him away saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water at that moment heaven was open and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased this is the word of the Lord. Glory to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. <laughs> I froze on saying good morning Sojourn. and I don't know why. So sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, welcome. My name's Jonah. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Excited to see you. Uh, one, one quick update. Last week, we started our new uh, sermon quiz initiative, which was met with a tepid response, I would say. Uh, some were very excited, some not so excited. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the last-minute stats, okay? So this is as of like Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, the quiz had, um, uh, I believe it was 80, people, 80 tests had been taken by like 42 people. See what's happening there? Which means we have, a, we have some very competitive Christians in our church who are taking it over and over and over again trying to get top scores, and then they text me to rub it in their face that they got a higher score than me. So just pray for those people, you know? Just pray for them. Um, but the uh, yeah, so the quiz, again, it's, it's intended to be fun. I, I said in uh, this time slot last week that like, we weren't going to keep track or have a high scoreboard, um, that was out of ignorance of how the quiz app works, and there is a high scoreboard. So good luck, church. Um, And if we, I don't know, if we get enough response, maybe Bobby will come up with the prize. So again, it's intended to be fun and silly. Uh, You can harass your friends if you want. Please don't send me text messages about how much smarter you are than me, because I'm fragile. Uh, So anyway, um, Bobby sends that out. You can find it in the app. If you go to the sermon audio of whatever that day is, that'll be a link to the quiz. And I guess you can take it as many times as you want, but let your conscience guide you on that one. Um, So anyway, uh, here we go. Um, You know, one of the, One of the uh, most common questions that I think we hear, maybe 30 and under, uh, maybe you start asking yourself when you're 30 and over instead of other people asking you, but is the age-old question, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know that question? What do you want to do when you grow up? And um, I know I just said it was age-old. I don't know why, rambling a little bit, because it's a pretty recent question if you think about it. Uh, it wasn't until very recent in human history that that was a question that we got to ask each other, or that someone would ask you, what do you want to do when you grow up? Um, for centuries, you know, your name answered that question. So you meet someone, it's like, hi, what's your name? I'm Joey Shoemaker. Uh, what do you do, Joey? I'm a shoemaker, right? And if you ask his kid, what are you going to do, Johnny Shoemaker? I'm going to do what daddy does. Right? I'm a shoemaker. That's That's what... We do. Um, but now we live in a world where there's all kinds of possibilities available to us. And we begin asking our children that question very early, sometimes because it's cute. Be- because if you ask a three-year-old, what do you want to do when you grow up, uh, they'll you get ridiculous answers. Astronaut, firefighter, doctor, teacher is, is what I want to be. And like, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> Just go ahead. Um, we, we ask that to our teenagers because the clock is ticking, Right? Um, And it's funny, in this most recent generation where, I don't know most recent, whatever, the ones that are getting self-employed now or full-time employment now, um, you know, we spent 18 or 20 years trying to insulate them from all responsibility and all decision making and all pain and all negative aspects of life. And then they get to 18, 19, 20. It's like, what do you want to do for the next 50 years? And like, oh, I don't know. Why would you know? You know what I mean? Supposed to be? So we ask them, Why, what do you want to do? Clock's ticking. Um, we ask ourselves in our 30s because the clock's ticking. Right? Shouldn't I be in my career by now? I'm 36. What do I want to really be when I grow up? Um, as we get older, I think the questions become more past tense. Uh, and they, maybe they start shifting to looking back at our life and saying, what have I done? What have I done with all of this time? And then, and then maybe you know, towards the end, we start asking things like, will anyone remember what I've done? Um, maybe some of us wrestle with the question, what should I have done? And that's where all of that pressure we put on our kids comes from, where we're saying, what do you want to do? Got to make a choice. Better declare a major. What are you going to do? Really? More school? More debt? Really? You want to be an artist? You want to paint? Really? And we just push all of this anxiety on each other. Uh, in our modern world, whatever modern means, most recent world, I suppose, uh, identity, that's, so that's who we are, and, and whether or not we see ourselves as having had a meaningful life is often tied with achievement and activity. I, and that might be a uniquely Western culture thing, I'm not sure, but for us, the way we usually answer the question of who am I or how have I done in life tends to be connected with what we've achieved and how busy we've been, um, how much we got done, and, and what kind of success we made it to. Um, I'm not opposed to achievement or activity. I am opposed to laziness. Uh, I am opposed to um, just kind of blowing your way through life, right? I don't know, whatever, just take it as it comes to me. Uh, I don't think that's the way of Christ. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Um, I am and I do believe the scriptures are opposed to thinking that achievement or activity can sustain the human soul or or that there's a level of achievement or activity that can be a strong enough foundation to hold an entire life. I don't think achievement and activity can provide a long-term sense of meaning in our lives. Uh, I don't think achievement or activity produces a sense of satisfaction in our lives over the long haul, and the evidence around us is absolutely crystal clear obvious. Um, Over the weekend, you see what happened to the owner of the Patriots? If, if you don't know, you, you can go Google it. But essentially, he's on video soliciting people to do illegal things as part of an illegal trafficking scheme. And maybe he wasn't part of the trafficking, I don't know, but he's still doing something awfully shady. And you're like, didn't you just win like your 11th Super Bowl? Just, a, I mean, a couple of weeks ago? Uh, maybe you saw another wealthy explosion a few weeks before that. The wealthiest man in the world... Announced he was getting a divorce. And they made it sound amicable. There's pictures of the two of them together, smiling. They were married for 25 years. They talked about what a good run they had and how they're still the best of friends. We've just gone our separate ways. And and then this man comes out and says someone is blackmailing him because they have pictures of him with his mistress. And it's like Oh, not so amicable, right? Not so like we had a good 25-year run. It's like you were running around, bro, and you got caught. And this will be the most expensive divorce in human history. But beyond the financial ramifications, what's this do to his legacy? He's, he started one of the most amazing companies that's ever, and I, I bet most of you use his company at least once a week or are involved with it somehow. Um, what will his children think of him? when everybody in the country knows what his dad did, and if they try hard enough, can probably find the pictures. How does that affect his legacy in, in his life? It cost him his children, it cost him his reputation, it cost him his legacy. Why? Because even though he was the wealthiest man in the world, with one of the greatest companies that ever existed, that he started, it was not enough. A beautiful wife with great kids and literally more money than anyone else, and it was not enough for him. How many Super Bowls do you need to convince yourself I shouldn't get involved in sex trafficking? Achievement and activity cannot sustain the human soul, period. The evidence is overwhelming. I've yet to hear an interview from a you know, highly successful business person or highly successful celebrity that said, you know what? the money worked. <laughs> We've got studies that say happiness stops increasing once you make $75,000 a year. So statistically, if you make more than $75,000 a year at this church, then you have reached the maximum amount of happiness your money can provide for you. We're, we're in the series talking about the more you were made for. Last week, we talked about entering into the story of God. And what I hope to show us this morning is that the more you are made for is something more than achievement and activity, which is the invitation isn't to let's all go get lazy and not do anything with our lives or not have jobs. That's not what I'm suggesting. Um, So last week, we left John the Baptist baptizing people who were openly admitting their sin. This was a very strange thing in that day, Probably would be equally strange here too. People honestly admitting that they're broken, that they need help, and that their way of life isn't working out for them. Crowds of people are coming home to God, agreeing with John's message, and they're turning around. And we learned that finding meaning in our stories always begins by entering into God's story, coming home, being baptized, making Jesus the main character of our lives, that that our life is somehow being wrapped up into his story and what he's doing in the world. John said Jesus would take away our sins. He would baptize us with the Spirit and with fire. It's this intense sermon that he preaches. But then something very unexpected happens. It says, then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. Why are you coming to me? So John is preparing people for Jesus, and then Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And John is confused. Because Jesus is the one he's been preparing people for. Jesus has no sin to repent of. Uh, and so John is very confused. This is, you're already home, Jesus. Why would you do this? I don't, this is inappropriate. I should be doing this for you. And Jesus's response is fascinating. He said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to be, agreed to baptize him. Um, you know, we heard it earlier. Some translations will say it's, it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus is not being baptized as a confession of sins or as an act of repentance, but to fulfill all all that God requires. He's fulfilling all of God's moral demands for relationship with him, obeying everything that God requires for fellowship with him. He's identifying with us and doing all that's required of us. So, you know, John, not one to argue with God, right? He's like, okay, Jesus, I will baptize you. John baptizes him. Jesus comes up out of the water, and it, uh, it gets pretty crazy. It says, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. So before unpacking some of specifically what is, this is talking about, I want you to think again about where we are at up to this point in the, the Gospel of John from Chapter 2 to chapter 3, this is the transition into Jesus' public ministry. He hasn't done anything yet. He's lived and worked. There's a 20-some a year gap between what the events of the end of chapter 2 and the events of chapter 3, right? There's a huge chunk of time here. And as far as we know, Jesus hasn't done anything miraculous or amazing or given any like grand new insight of revelation into God. What did... What did he do those 20 years? Well, he ate breakfast most days. He ate lunch most days and dinner most days. And he went to work most days. Why don't we have anything about those 20 years? Because he was doing what you do in the early years of life. He's going to school. He's got a job. And he's just growing up. It's a boring, normal, ordinary life. Nothing remarkable as far as we can tell in that 20-year window. And what does God say about him? Ah, uh, This is my boy. I love him so much. Listen to him. It's not based on these things that, that Jesus has achieved. It's based on his identity as God's child. And so God's affection is upon him before Jesus has done anything that we would say is spectacular or noteworthy. And so here the Spirit of God descends. Something like a dove probably wasn't a literal dove, right? Like, So what is this? I don't know. It's incredible imagery. Um, it, it, has connotations of gentleness and peacefulness, but I think above all, it's imagery of love. This is uh, the father giving a warm embrace to his son, and God's revealing what he's up to in Christ. You you, you may recall way back in the beginning in Genesis that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters before uh, it was all formed into the earth as we know it. And now, similarly, the Spirit of God is hovering over his Son who will make all things new again. It's a subtle way that God is saying, this is the one who will recreate all that is into the way it was intended to be. The new heavens and earth, that that journey has begun. And then a voice appears. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And dad loved him before he had done anything worth remembering. Delight, joy, joy. A proud father, Jesus' dad didn 't miss his big day, right? Like maybe you're someone here who your dad missed your big day, and I just want you to know you have a Father in heaven who never misses the big day. This is the formal installation of Jesus, the beginning of his public ministry, and Dad was there, and he wasn't just physically there he's, he's there emotionally speaking words of affirmation and pleasure. and what's so interesting to me i I, I never caught this until recently the words that he's using here god is describing the deep pleasure he has for his son using the words of god from the scriptures so in here there's this is quotes from both psalm 2 and isaiah 42 so god is speaking over his son using his word on his biggest day of his life it's it's this beautiful picture of how the trinity works within one another so I, Let's take a couple look at these verses. So this is what Psalm 2 says, the verses he's quoting, saying, You are my son. Today I've become your father. Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The whole earth is your possession. This psalm was a prediction of what Messiah would be, what he would look like in terms of his, his function and, and identity. This isn't saying, like, just now on this day, now Jesus is the Son of God. It's saying Jesus is fulfilling this promise that would come, that who Messiah would be. God's own Son would come, God's pleasure would rest on him, and God would give the whole earth to him. This is reinforcing some of Jesus' royal identity we looked at back in Matthew 1. The whole earth belongs to him. I will give all of the nations to him. He will be the king, the savior for everyone. So by by quoting this psalm to Jesus, God is affirming to Jesus and announcing to the world, this is the one I told you about. This is my boy. He can have anything he wants because I love him so much. The whole earth is his possession. This is the one that you've been waiting for. Dad is saying these words over his son on this most important day of his life to this point. And now Isaiah 42. Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He's my chosen one who pleases me. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. So here, um, he's, he's describing the mission that this son would come to fulfill. Last week, we saw how John's baptism redefined the people of God. Who can be considered a child of God or the people of God? And it's whoever's willing to come home. Whoever wants to come to the party that God is throwing. So in Matthew 1, Jesus is the fulfillment of a king for everyone who will reign forever. And now with with these words, God is affirming Jesus as the for everyone eternal king who will bring justice to the nations. The the people of God won't be this set-apart look-at-us group. Rather, it's redefined. Who comes home to God through Christ will not be sent out. And what will they be sent out to do? To bring justice to the nations, You could think of justice as simply the proper ordering of life in society. This is how the world is created to function, and my children will be sent out to make it so. So, again, on the most important day of Jesus' life, his true father was there. He affirms him with words of delight and pleasure and announces to the entire world, it's time. The eternal for everyone king has arrived, and he will bring justice to the nations. Next week, we'll see this immediately results in trial and temptation for Jesus. So some of you, especially if you're new to following Jesus or you start following Jesus soon, know that right out of the gate, it usually gets tough. Something happens. There's people who aren't going to be happy about what you're doing. There's an enemy who's not happy about what's, what's happening to you. Immediately after this moment in Jesus's life, he goes and he'll face trial and temptation Um, And as we journey through Matthew, we'll see Jesus consistently faces persecution, he faces betrayal, he faces doubt and confusion, and yet for Jesus, life was not about his achievements or his accolades. You see, he withstands these misunderstandings. He says no to people in desperate need, even though he knows it'll result in their being disappointed or hurt. He knew when to rest and say no. He knew his identity was secure. He didn't let the opinions or the the betrayals or the hurts of others sway his conviction or his mission. Why? Because the more we're made for is found in coming home to God. Over and over and over, Jesus rests in the voice of his Father, who before he had done anything worth remembering, said to him, I love you, I care for you, the whole world is yours. That was the anchor for Jesus' soul. And you'll see so often, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't love us, okay? Jesus loves us, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? I'm not saying Jesus loves us, but what sustains Jesus in his mission is his love for his father and his father's words to him. So in the garden, Jesus doesn't say, God, I don't want to do this, but I love these people so much, I'm going to do it anyway. He says, God, I don't want to do this. Speaking of the crucifixion, if there's any other way For this to happen, please, but not my will be done, your will be done. Jesus doesn't say, I have come to show these people how much I love them. He says, I've come to do the will of my Father, and that is to not lose one of all that he's given to me. So what sustains Jesus amidst the sideways circumstances and the disappointments of his life is a concrete, deep awareness of how loved he is by his Father, the more we're made for is found in coming home to God. That is where our soul can rest. When we turn around like Jesus, we're baptized, and once we do, we receive these new identities, two new realities that become true for us. Um, When Jesus is the main character of our stories, we receive restored relationship with God. That is the foundation the human soul was intended to be lived on. Our souls are reconnected to the source of all life, and we can learn how to live again. No amount of achievement will settle the soul or empower us through adversity. We need to hear the voice of our true Father looking at us and showering us with love. If what settles your soul is the opinions or approval of the people around you, you will live a scattered, chaotic life. You'll go with the crowd and you'll do things that make no sense. You'll make decisions at work that violate the integrity and the reputation you worked so hard for. You'll do things in your marriage. You'll do things with your children. You'll do things with your friends because that's what the crowd says. And this internal compass you have is just all over the place. We need to hear the voice of our true Father looking at us and showering us with love. And you see this in the life of Jesus. When days are full, When life is busy, when life goes sideways, he retreats to hear the voice of his father in prayer. He responds using the voice of his father from the Bible. Over and over and over again, Jesus rests his soul on his identity as a child. The the blessing of our true father, our identity as his child, fills our souls with an awareness of how loved we are and how significant we are. If that voice is real for you, on long days, hard days, when you step back and say, the maker of heaven and earth looks at me and says, this is my child, and I love him. How, more, how important must you be that the, the God of the universe would go through all of this just so you could be in his family? And, and that reality, if that's real for you, nothing can hold a candle to that. You can look in the face of adversity or disappointment or circumstances or lost money or lost jobs or any losses that we face in life and know I'm still loved and I'm still okay. We receive a new identity when we come home to God. We are a child of God, a son of the king of the universe, a daughter of the king of the universe. And in this new family, we receive a new purpose. The, the promise of Messiah was, at least in part, that he would bring justice to the nations just as his father quoted Isaiah over him. This is so amazing, the interactions between God the Father and God the Son through God the Spirit using the word of God. They're speaking these words to one another. So God speaks the words of the prophet Isaiah over Jesus as an affirmation and an announcement to the world. And in just a little while, Jesus will speak over people from words of Isaiah saying, this is who I am and this is what I've come to do. And so in... In Luke's gospel, this is one of Jesus' first lessons. He says, he's quoting from Isaiah here. He's got a scroll of Isaiah opened, and he's standing in in a room full of teachers. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. This is what justice to the nations will look like. And he's saying, I am the one who has come to do it. I am the one who will rightly order society filled with the spirit of Christ. Now we are the ones who join him in carrying out that work. This is the mission of the kingdom of God. Is it to save souls? Absolutely, we want to see people get saved. But we must not make the mistake of of thinking that God has only eternal concerns for us. We're not just disembodied spiritual creatures. He's given us an earth, He's given us cities and lives and bodies. And the promise is, in the new heavens and earth, we have a city and we have bodies and we'll have interactions. Like the the stuff of the earth matters to God. He's not just a tomorrow God. He's also a today God. And so the issues of today matter to us. This is the work that God says my family is about. I don't care what you do to earn a living. But as my daughter, as my child, you are part of our team that brings justice to the nations. And the kingdom of God, as far as I know, it's the only mission and purpose that is big enough to sustain us. So yes, Jesus rested in his identity and he heard the voice of his father and that secured him. And then he went about the family business. He went and got busy and active, but it was for the mission of God. Resting in your father's love so you can go and join the family business, bringing justice to the nations, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, inviting everyone to join the feast. So, I mean, if you want to get practical for a second, where do you see society as disordered? Where do you see people being treated as less than human? Where do you see unfair systems, unfair structures, disadvantages, things that do not reflect the kingdom of God? What should we do about it? Go fix it. And what will that mean for you? I don't know what that will mean for you precisely, but you're smart. You, can, you have the spirit of God living inside of you. It, what would happen if we said, why am I here? I want to know God and bring justice to the nations. Some of you have jobs that just feel miserable. Don't amen because your boss might be here, right? Like, you have jobs and you're like, what is this even for? What am I doing here? And at some point, every job feels that way. It's called work, right? It's not called, I have to go to play for 40 hours a week, right? They're like, everybody has parts of our jobs that are unpleasant. But if you're expecting a job in and of itself to hold and sustain the longings of your soul, boy, are you going to be a frustrated, if not incredibly bitter, 65-year-old, or 67, whatever the retirement age is. But if you see, my work gives me a place to influence the people around me, for the sake of the kingdom of God. We'll see in a few weeks that Jesus' mission for uh, transforming the world is sending us out. He calls us the salt of the world, the light of the world, and we go out to bring the kingdom of God to bear. So listen, please. The more you are made for is found not in achievement or accolades, but through your new identity and your new purpose. If your purpose is more achievement, in hopes of being loved, you will be busy and eventually you will be exhausted. In Christ, God loves you the way He loves Jesus. I mean, this is, this, I think, maybe the most. I'm having a theological debate with myself internally. One of at least the most staggering promises of the New Testament is the doctrine of union with Christ, which means at the cross, God made a way for you and Jesus to be united. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So to put it real simply, what that means is if you've come home, when God looks at you, he sees the beauty and the splendor of Jesus. He sees the life that Jesus has lived. And no matter what you've lived, if your trust is in Christ, he looks at you and says, I'm so pleased with you. I see the beauty of my son in you. And I wanted you so much that my son came and presented you to me as a gift of his love. In Christ, God loves you the way he loves Jesus. You are his beloved child, and he is pleased. Who are you? You are one who is loved by God, loved and delighted in. He doesn't just love you. He also likes you, which means when God looks at you, he's smiling, which some of us, it's way easier to just camp out and like, God is love and he's sovereign, so he loves me but we still carry around this feeling that he's disappointed in us or frustrated with us, or it's like, man, you're 30, you're 36. I really thought you'd be in your career by now. Shouldn't you be getting more done? If your trust is in Christ, he looks at you and says, I'm so pleased with you. And now that translates to a new purpose. Because of this reality, I work with Jesus to bring justice to the nations. We will properly order things so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You ever heard that phrase before? Notice Jesus, when, we, when, he, when his disciples ask him, teach us to pray, he doesn't say, Lord, take us to heaven as soon as possible because all of this stuff will burn anyway. There, there's a paralleling of God's order. The way God functions in heaven, he has entrusted us to make the earth function that way. No one should care more about the earth or how society functions or how people are treated than the Christian because we are God's plan of restoration and redemption to the world. In Christ, we go and reorder society so that the justice of God may be brought to the nations. And this is not to secure our worth or to feel lovable. Because, you know, saying justice in a sermon in a church like ours usually results in emails or subtweets at this point. Right? Like, the, depending on the cultural climate, the things that the children of God will do won't always be popular. And if we're driven by popularity, we will not do the things of God. We we will not operate as family members of God. We love and we go because God loved and God came already. This has already happened for us. We are secure, so we do what daddy does because we are loved and we are in the family with him. So to put it simply, the more that you are made for begins when you stop wanting something more and you start wanting someone more. That's where the the object of our affections and longings becomes God himself and hearing his voice, showering us with love and delight and affection so that we can be grounded in that reality and then go and make all things new alongside Christ. Jesus' ministry, do you ever notice this? Begins here, plunged in a river of sinners, and it ends plunged in a river of sin, hung between two sinners. He's displaying for us the way he identifies with us in our brokenness and in our pain. He endured all of this because his identity was secure with his father and he wanted to present you as a gift of love back to his father. So every week, sometimes like other pastors who visit, we'll be like, why do you do communion every week? Doesn't that kind of uh, dilute the effect, right? Or like, doesn't it get old? And I'm like, you preach every week, don't you? That's when the conversation stops, right? I'm like, you preach every week, don't you? He's like, well, that's different. Explain to me how, right? Like, you sing every week, don't you? You, have, you gather, what? Maybe we should just have church once every quarter, right? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you do with that. We come to communion every week because this is the crucial reality, that anchors the soul and empowers us to go and be who God has made us to be. That all of our hopes and fears are met in Christ, that he quiets our souls and he's made a way for us to be with him and to be who he's created us to be. And so on the night he was betrayed, which I hope that never gets old, hearing that, this act of love happened on the night he was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread and broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Remember what I've done for you. Remember who I am for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. Communion, the whole process of it, we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we take these things and we put them in our body. We chew them and we swallow them and it becomes who we are. This is a grand reminder of our union with Christ. God sees us clothed in the beauty of his son. The body and the blood give us confidence that God looks at us and says to the world, this is the apple of my eye. I'm so pleased with this one. And and this one is all of my delight. And, And that will secure our identity. The more that becomes real for us, it will secure our identity and we will go and join God's work. Our tradition at Sojourn is to rip off a piece of bread, and you can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine around it. You can use whichever you'd like, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. Um, This is a meal for Christians. This is a family celebration. And so if, if you don't believe in Jesus, we're grateful that you're here. Your invitation today is simply to come home, Do you want to feel the anchor in your soul? Do you want to feel a life of purpose and meaning? It is only found in knowing Christ and following him. Uh, So after the service, men and women will be up front. that would love to talk to you about that. Uh, I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come celebrate together. Let's pray.